0: As weather geeks, we know that the earth is changing and climate is changing. As human beings, we also change and our bodies and mind have needs that need to be met as well. Both of those sets of needs cannot be ignored or else there will be ramifications down the line. Scientists who are tasked with tackling and researching climate change are starting to experience mental and emotional health issues because of all of the pressure that this monumental event brings. My guest today is Suzanne Moser, who is shedding light on these issues, along with the personal challenges that being on an on-camera meteorologist or scientist brings in this current era. Susan, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast.
1: It's great to be here.
0: Thanks for having me. And now is it Susan or Suzanne before I get started as we go forth?
1: Suzanne is fine.
0: Okay, so we'll go with Suzanne. I actually called you Susan there, but I want to make sure I get your name right. So Suzanne Moser is uh, has a lot of credentials that I want to kind of establish before we get started. Uh, she's Director and Principal Researcher of Suzanne Moser Research and Consulting, uh, an affiliated faculty in the Department of Landscape Architecture and Regional Planning at the University of Massachusetts. Massachusetts Amherst and a research faculty in the environmental studies department at Antioch University in New England, Antioch University, New England. So she's clearly a leading expert on climate change adaptation, science policy interactions, decision support, and communication for social change. So uh, I'm, I'm very happy to talk to you today about this topic, weathering the storm, because it's something that I see emerging quite a bit uh, in, in the field that I operate in. I'm, I'm Dr. Marshall Shell from the University of Georgia. And let's get started. But before we do that, you're a human geographer. And I I actually, I'm a tenured faculty member in the uh, Department of Geography at the University of Georgia, though I'm a meteorologist by degree. Many people that are listening to the Weather Geeks podcast may not know what a human geographer is. So can you talk about what a human geographer is and how you became one? (laughs)
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, I started actually in your field. I started with climatology, um, meteorology, and uh, physical geography. And then I got really interested in this question of, well, so how does this affect humans? And lo and behold, geography is actually one of the key disciplines that we have that looks specifically at the interaction between humans and their environment, um, and with particular emphasis of doing so um, with looking at the spatial relationships. How do we connect with each other? How do, does information flow? How do people and goods and processes flow over over t- uh, space? And so, you know, it was just simply an interesting thing. I, I studied the impact of uh, storms on Massachusetts for my master's degree. I looked at uh, state responses to sea level rise, you know. So it got pretty quickly human. And, and what I learned over time and what I find is so fascinating is that What we call environmental problems actually are people problems. (laughs) You've got to manage the people more than the environment um, to, you know, to get to better uh, conditions um, that we benefit from, that we don't get harmed by. And so that's what got me interested, and what's fascinated me ever since.
0: Yeah, and that's just, uh, an interesting point because I've, I find also matriculating in a geography department, people just don't know what geography is. They think it's maps and atlases and the types of things that they're exposed to. But I think increasingly with more AP, human geography courses in high school, over time that will change because geography is much broader than that. It's composed in the physical geography, uh, GIS, GI science and human geography and many other things as well. So I'm glad you gave that little one-on-one. I, I want to now pivot to, Uh, the topic of weathering the storm. Um, As a climate scientist and also as meteorologists, we deal with information that can be quite stressful because at times it has implications, life-saving implications, life-taking implications, if you will, or even longer-term impacts on society and human beings. And I think increasingly we've recognized that that's tough On people, and so uh, you know, climate scientists deal with this ongoing crisis. Uh, What are your just introductory thoughts on the intersection of sort of mental health, weather, and climate? I mean, I want to have a very deep conversation here, but I want to get your preliminary opening thoughts.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I'm really. Glad that you actually are making that a topic of you know one of these podcasts. It's it's um, emerging wherever I go. People are saying, "Oh my God, I'm so depressed. I'm you know really um, worried. I have anxieties. I'm grieving over what we're losing with climate change." But of course, more meteorologists deal with these extreme events very often, right? It's not just all sunshine or a little bit of rain. It's oftentimes hurricanes or coastal storms or you know wildfire weather or whatever the case may be, and What's interesting is that it's both a challenging issue for the people who are providing these forecasts, and it's a challenging issue for the people who receive it. And let me talk about both for a moment. For the people who receive it, of course, it is, you know, what will happen to my home? Is my business going to be disrupted? Um, is the community prepared and can it deal with it? Can we recover quickly? I mean, most people, well, I wouldn't say most people who go through a disaster experience, what we call PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, but many people actually do, and that is a set of emotional responses of overwhelm and grief, and you can't sleep, and you're just, you know, hopeless after an event, Um, have anxieties every time another storm comes, you're like, you know, on edge. Those kinds of things is, is what people experience who have gone through one of these events. Now, for meteorologists, interestingly enough, they have to deliver that news. So they're the messengers of bad news, bad things coming. And very often they live in the very same cities, very same towns where those things are going to be experienced. So while they're on air giving you the latest, their family might be at risk. Their family might be impacted. You know, and so... (laughs) <laughs> They're supposed to be cheery and, and or at least professional about you know giving you whatever this in, important life-saving information, and at the same time they may have to cope with and put aside on a shelf their own worries about what's happening to their own loved ones. so it's the combination of the two and one that is happening increasingly more often as climate change fuels many of these extreme events and makes them worse.
0: You know, I want to sort of follow up on that because I remember a couple of years ago, hurricane, uh, I believe it was, I, I can't remember the hurricane now, but uh, there was a hurricane approaching Key West. And I, I had a classmate of mine from Florida State University, Department of Meteorology, he's in the National Weather Service there. And as everyone was evacuating, they had to stay. They, 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 were, they were there to Key West sort of right as the storm was approaching. I couldn't help but think about them and their families, the things that you very much mentioned. Uh, on a job ad for a meteorology position I saw earlier last year, it talked about the high stress environment. And so I, I appreciate that you point out, I often see after these weather disasters, I see people thinking the first responders and the emergency managers, and rightfully so. Those people are right in there at first. But I always remind people that this is pretty stressful for the meteorologists or the scientists that's delivering information that impacts people's lives. And so I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to hear that this is something that that you uh, have kind of focused on as well. Let's talk about climate change first, and then I want to circle back to the stresses on meteorologists. Uh, I, I've seen some writings that suggest that people kind of from a psychological perspective often times, don't see climate change as an immediate threat, it's something off in the distance. So sort of psychologically, they just kind of shove it off in a corner and don't worry about it. Is, is that your experience as well?
1: You know, it's been my experience for a long time that, you know, and it's a very human um, response that we keep overwhelming dangers sort of at arm's length, that we think of it, oh, that's going to happen to other people in other countries in other towns maybe even other species or in developing country or, you know, whatever. Like all these ways, what we in psychology call psychological distancing. We try to keep the threat at bay by just thinking of it as a far threat. Now, with climate change, many of these events are coming to our doorstep. And if they're not coming directly to us, turn on the TV, and there you have one on the screen somewhere in the world, right? Somewhere in the country, something's happening. I mean, Australia... The fires in recent weeks, um, whether it's a storm, whether it's, you know, I mean, it's like something's happening almost everywhere around the world at any one time. And so we vicariously or directly experience these things more and more often.
0: And you mentioned Australian fires or other events. Do you feel that uh, normal people or just the general public that is experiencing more that? Are you noticing in your own research, uh, are there studies in the peer-reviewed literature uh, where we're seeing upticks in mental health issues just because of what I would call weather or climate stress?
1: So there's a number of different ways I would answer that. One is that um, there is a handful of um, psychologists, psychiatrists who have begun to specialize on the impacts of climate change on mental health. And they have warned at least for 10 years what those impacts might be. And what we're now observing is that's actually unfolding. Um, You know, with more extreme event, we are seeing more of these uh, traumatic experiences that people are having with, you know, lasting effects um, we're certainly seeing the conversation shifting. I mean, just in the last year, um, I don't know how many um, articles I have seen that talk about the emotional toll that climate change has taken on people, the hopelessness, the despair. I do a lot of trainings in communication on climate change. And you know, early on, it was all, how do we talk about the science? Then it was all about, how do we deal with the skeptics? And in recent years, it's all about, how do we keep hope up? How do we deal with the people who are numbed out because they cannot look at this any longer? So it's definitely there. And, you know, as I'm noticing with uh, colleagues of, of mine in the adaptation arena for people who deal and prepare for the impacts of climate change, they're getting it from multiple sides. I mean, they have to they know the science. They get what this might mean for the local communities that they're in charge of, of working And then they are the the messengers, just like meteorologists. They're the messengers to their communities and and carry this this information forward. And, you know, most people aren't just welcoming them with open arms. Like, you wonder why, right? They don't want to hear that their house is going to be flooded or that they have to relocate. So then they start attacking the person who is, you know, actually there to help them. And so while they're doing their best and feeling like it's going way too, too slow... They feel like they can never stop, they can never rest. They then also get attacked for doing that or doing it all wrong or doing it not in the way of you know this person or that person wants. So they're in a really tough position, and I've seen certainly an uptake there. I'm involved in a study right now that is trying to understand what is the stresses that, that planners and sustainability officers and environmental managers in communities are facing. And what we're learning is that four out of five people are experiencing burnout. Four out of five, wow. they wanna leave the field or they're simply no longer effective in their work because they're so stressed out. That's really problematic, right? If, if now is the time we want these planners to be in their best shape and to do the best work they ever can, but they're burnt out, That's really
0: a problem for all of us. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, We're talking with Dr. Suzanne Moser, a human geographer specializing in, among other things, psychological responses to climate change. And related to that, as, as a climate scientist myself and talking with other colleagues, there's a frustration level that we feel. Uh, we convey this information. We're trained as scientists. We base our interpretations of what's happening on data, on models, things that we as scientists are trained to do, and then they fall on deaf ears or you're attacked on social media or policymakers just sort of dismiss it as a hoax because all of a sudden they have more expertise than these people that have trained and studied their entire lives to, to understand this topic. Um, from your perspective, what do you tell climate scientists who are dealing with that aspect of the problem?
1: You know, it's so interesting. Both meteorologists and climate scientists basically are trained in technical, in providing technical information. Right. That's their job. That's how they get their credibility. That's what they think everybody wants. And then they deliver information that has humongous implication on the audiences that they speak to. And they expect that just people to take that in as if it was, you know, we're talking about the grocery list. Well, we're not. We're talking about life and death issues. We're talking about the future of our children, about our life on this planet. Now, you have to understand as a communicator of technical information, scientific information of that importance, that people will have a response first in their gut before they have a response with the rational mind. That's just not how this works. People are afraid. People are worried. People need to know, well, what do I do? And very often, climate scientists have failed to provide information about what to do. Now, thank goodness, most TV meteorologists I know tell you, you know, listen to your uh, emergency emergency response people, heed their warnings, go do this, go do that. So they, they actually provide solution information. But when it comes to climate change, we often do not have Any simple solutions or any easy solutions, and certainly what any individual can do, is limited in impact. When we all do it, it's a whole different story. But alone, it feels like this overwhelming issue. And so what we know from psychology is that when people hear overwhelming information without having a way to deal with it, they have basically, you know, they basically just go into denial. They go into numbing down. And that's what you experience as deaf ears.
0: That's quite interesting. And I I had read some literature on that very topic. Uh, And I want to now pivot that to the weather part of the discussion, because I know there's work. For example, it's always baffled many people how a hurricane, a, a Hurricane Michael from 2018, for example, cat three, cat four, cat five hurricane approaching the Florida panhandle or uh, perhaps another storm. And there are people that I think experience what I, I guess is called normalcy bias. Um, they've sort of lived through things before and nothing extraordinary happened. I often hear that. Uh, are some of those same types of things at play in terms of how people respond to severe weather warnings or perhaps even a hurricane that's approaching their, their house, but they just don't want to leave?
1: Well, I mean, you'd understand why, right? I mean, we have, you know, this is where we live. This is where all our possessions are. I think there's some weird thing about if we were here, we could do something. But, of course, you know, when you're facing a 200 miles an hour gusts, there's not much you or anybody can do, right? But but that's the this desire in the face of a, a dramatic event like this to have still some form of control. Um, you know, there's images occasionally on the news about, um, looting after events and people don't want that. So there's all kinds of reasons probably that go into why people don't want to do it. And certainly this notion that, you know, we've gone through the last one and got away. Okay. So I'm going to stick out, stick it out. And, you know, hopefully it's the same. And of course that has killed many people, um, that very sentiment. Um, but you know, this is, I mean, I understand why people do it and yet it's, probably the most risky choice, because in the end, is it losing a life, getting injured, or is it losing a few possessions? And, you know, it's, it's, those are tough choices to make, but I think I, w- I would know where I would come down. I mean, I'd rather lose my stuff than my life.
0: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Suzanne Moser. And the goal of her work generally is to help increase resilience, reduce vulnerability, and transform the ways humans interact with the environment and each other to sustain a livable planet and live peacefully and have satisfying lives. So thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. I want to learn more about your Adaptive Mind project. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so this is a really, I'm glad you asked. Um The Adaptive Mind Project is is a project that came out of the very questions that I raised or mentioned earlier that were my colleagues in the adaptation community are burning out at really unsustainable rates. And they need some kind of support to basically keep going and do the work that we all need them to do, which is help us get prepared and become more resilient in communities as climate change unfolds. And so what we're trying to figure out with this project is both a little bit of research, but then really translating that research into, um, if you will, professional development, into training, into practices for these practitioners. So what we're trying to research is what, what are the capacities or the skills and the traits of people who can deal with constant change, traumatic change, and transformative change. And I can say something more about each one of these, but that's the kind of things that we will experience more and more of. Yeah, I would would like to,
0: before we go too far down the road, could you kind of distinguish the the two or three that you just mentioned?
1: Yeah. So with climate change, you know, historically we've thought that the climate is stable. You know, there's little variations from day to day and season to season, but pretty much You could expect that what you're experiencing this year is not all that different from what you experienced 10 years ago, 30 years ago. That was basically our definition of climate, right? That average condition in a particular place. And with climate change, that's now all changing. So from day to day, you can no longer plan that what you're doing today is still going to work in five years, in 10 years, in 15 years from now. You have to deal with constant change. There's things that are going to happen, surprises. You have no idea we're coming out of left field. So that nimbleness, you know, what is that skill that someone can deal with it? Some people can, and some are really not great at this. And then occasionally those things out of left field are these disasters, these traumatic events that affect a community. And how you cope with that and how you help your community cope with that is a whole different set of things. And increasingly, these planners and, and people who work in communities, they have to face not just a little bit of you know, preparing their houses or a little bit of adaptation here and there. They have to face tra- tra- transformative change. What I mean by that is truly changing where they live, what their work is, their livelihoods, their incomes, how their community looks. I mean, essentially, after, you know, from before and after transformative change, your lives are completely different. You cannot go back to the previous state. And how to make that transition to get from one to the other? Well, we believe there is a whole different set of challenges and skills and capacities involved in making that. So we're trying to understand what each of these capacities are and then what part of that is trainable, learnable. You know, I mean, some people might say, oh, they're just gifted leaders. They, they come in with this and they can deal with all this and other people are just not. Well, maybe, but some part might actually be something that people can learn. And that part we want to understand and then develop trainings so that we can bring these to people and build up those capacities that they need to do their job well, while taking care of themselves as they go through a really stressful time.
0: You know, as I was listening to your your answer there, something came to mind. I just we're we're in an era where there's just a lot of mean spiritedness, vitriol, hate, uh, lack of tolerance for other people and their their tendencies. I mean, I what do you say to people who say, "Oh, this is oh, just get over it." Oh, climate change. Oh, why are you worried? Oh, you're you're the the uh, the word which I just absolutely despise. Even though I'm a meteorologist, but I hate the context of how it's being used now snowflakes and all of these types of things, what do you say to people that sort of, and I know it's said because I've seen it and I hear it when people express concern about climate change or worry or physical sickness over it or mental uh, illness over it, what What do you say to people who are so dismissive and vitriolic in that tone?
1: Yeah, I've seen that too, and it's serious. Um you know, I just published this article with some, some colleagues and we were talking ahead of time how we're going to deal with the trolling that is sort of almost expected by now um, on social media when you put something like this out. And lo and behold, you know, those voices came and they all called us wusses and, you know, get over it. Everyone has had a tough time and get on with it. Well, um, I think this is a form of dismissal, and I wonder if it's, you know, I don't know this, of course, because I don't know these people personally who say these things, but I wonder to what extent it is um, a way of shutting down a conversation that might be also difficult for them. You know, it's so much easier to just shut somebody up by calling them a wuss, right? It's much more difficult to actually say, tell me more about that. Tell me what you think. Um, or how you experience in this, and be curious. And that's, of course, the recipe for all true dialogue, that we actually hold our back our judgments of other people and actually make space for genuine questions, genuine dialogue, and listening to what people are saying. You don't have to necessarily agree, but you maybe want to understand where someone is coming from. And for me, a, an answer like that is just, here is someone who is not interested in really trying to understand or go there themselves. And I'm actually seeing that again and again and again. People who are most um, dismissive of climate change and dismissive of people who have an experience um, like this um, with climate change, they they tend to be people who are actually deeply underneath, very afraid of the changes that are coming. They're threatening to them. They're threatening them in their deepest identity. And, you know, that's, you can't have a heady conversation or a heady discussion about that. I think you need people who are willing to actually go and look at that within themselves. And that's a challenging piece. It certainly is very difficult to have over social media in 140 characters. To me, you need a space for that. That is a true dialogue.
0: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm talking with Dr. Suzanne Moser, who uh, wears many hats as the director of the principal re- director and principal researcher, I should say, at the Suzanne Moser Research and Consulting in Hadley, Massachusetts. She's also an affi- affiliated faculty in the Department of Landscape scape architecture and regional planning at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and a research faculty in the environmental studies department at Antioch University, New England. Susan, thank you again for, uh, Suzanne, I should say. I I, I know someone that uh, spells their name just like you, but they actually do say Susan, so I apologize there. No worries. Uh, but thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. I want to pivot a little bit. I know this is an area Somewhat outside your area of expertise, but I I think that you have enough expertise that we can engage in a conversation. Uh, Meteorologists are constantly scrutinized in the public. Unfortunately, there have been recent sort of suicides. Uh, a young Texas-based meteorologist uh, uh, committed suicide recently. Uh, there's a lot of vitriol and hate towards uh, social meteorologists, on-camera meteorologists in terms of their, their presentation, how they look, their hairstyles, what they wear, how they're dressed, etc. Uh, and this is actually creating a crisis in some regards for many young meteorologists that go into the field, uh, this notion of, of the perspective. Uh, what are your thoughts on sort of the social media scrutiny that TV meteorologists or on-camera meteorologists face?
1: You know, it's a, I mean, I just want to acknowledge what you just said. Um, if if we're at a point where the stresses on meteorologists are such that um, they would consider con- committing suicide, that's, that I think requires attention um, at the highest levels of leadership in the profession um, and in this country in terms of, you know, the kinds of tone that we struck, what kind of society do we, do we want to be? What it, what it makes me, you know, aware of, um, and it's partly through colleagues of mine who are in the weather business and who were friends with the gentleman who committed suicide, um, it has a ripple effect, it affects many other people. And those are particularly important times for colleagues to come together. You know, this is one of those things that we suggest that people do around stressful times. It's not just, you know, go to see a therapist or go take care of yourself, but talk to your colleagues, you know, be connected to others so that you know how they're doing, you can have somebody to talk to about how you're doing, the really important thing, and this is a time where employers of stations need to step up and pull together their staff, and not shove it under the table, but talk about it, um, and talk about those stresses, and and share what's working for people in terms of how to deal with that. Um, you know, we we did that when my colleague who knew this Texas gentleman, um, when you know he killed himself, we had a chat as a group amongst ourselves of how she's coping with it. And, you know, there must be time for for tears. There must be times for people losing their friends. I mean, that's really important amongst us as professionals, as colleagues, as friends, of how we deal with it. And beyond that, I think um, we need to find ways, and by we I mean anybody who really is engaged in a public conversation on social media to help Change the tone. I think there has been a slow degradation. You know, it's a cut by a thousand little paper cuts here of how we are degrading in the public tone of how we deal with each other. We're gonna have a lot more challenging times coming. And I wonder how we think we're gonna get through that if we're gonna all attack each other. I mean, I- unfortunately, this country has way too many guns for me to, you know, think that this is gonna be the way forward. We ought to be in Re establishing a tone of public conduct and public conversation that is actually aware that we need each other to get through tough
0: times. You know, it's interesting that you say that because just yesterday I tweeted something, you know, there I, I had posted something on my public Facebook page. Uh, well, no, I'm sorry. Someone had posted something on my public Facebook page. They were being very sarcastic and condescending because it was a cold day and they were like, so, so much for global warming. And so I, you know, I posted after that, I was like, this person's probably trying to make a point, but what they're really ending up showing is that they don't understand the difference between weather and climate. But... In that there's a, a fellow that commented in the thread that uh, oh somehow I was being condescending and disrespectful to the person that was originally sort of mean spirited and condescending to me. So it, it I wrote I've tweeted where did we how did we get to a point where someone control and feel like it's okay to be disrespectful hateful and condescending to a scientist, but when a scientist gives a very direct and similar tone back they all of a sudden play the victim role or somehow feel uh, that all of a sudden now they're being attacked. I, I just thought that was a very interesting thing. And I see it all of the time in social media. Um, I, is it bullyism? Is it narcissism? Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: <laughs> well, so there's multiple things. It's, you know, in social media, it's there's no face. It's so easy, you know, to just basically post anything. Um, and and become nasty. This is why people have established protocols of um, you know tone of behavior on social media. That's one piece of that. Um, I think there is a, a way in which you know at the highest levels we're daily witnessing um, very immature, very improper behavior that's being modeled for us and that normalizes the sort of behavior. I think there is a place of intervention. <laughs> Um, if one were so inclined, um, it, it's you know what we learn from kindergarten onward, from our families onward, in every place we go. And what you point out is that you know the rules are different for professionals apparently than for others, and that makes it in part so frustrating. And we get so you know upset with scientists when they ever express an emotion, right? We are supposed to take it all, but not respond in kind, and. You know, there's probably good, I mean, lots of good things to be said for not responding in kind, but there, it just adds to the stresses, the emotional toll that working in this field takes. And so I think it's really asking each of us every moment to really, you know, question what do I want to bring forward? Who do I want to be in private, in public? And, you know, I'll tell you a small little story about um, one of those instances I had. I was asked to give a a, a keynote address at a scientific conference and I was dying to give this particular way of giving a conference, uh, a a talk, which is to use only cartoons. And I did that and I made fun of everybody, of scientists, of the deniers, (laughs) of, you know, anybody, of politicians, of the media, everyone who, who gets basically made fun of in cartoons. Afterwards, this woman comes up to me, and she was very clearly introducing herself as a climate skeptic, and she said, thank you. Thank you for the first time in a climate conversation. I have not felt ridiculed or ostracized. I was taken seriously. And so, you know, here was a little different tone I struck in giving a very serious talk about climate change, and yet she came up to me and thanked me. It opened the door, right? We just shifted the tone of the conversation and we were sort of all on the same level and she wasn't different. And, and we had a conversation following that. It was, you know, clearly I couldn't convince her, but at least we had a human connection. And quite frankly, that's in the end gonna be more important to me than having one more person who understands climate change is real.
0: Right. And I, th- I think you you hit on a key point there in that, that answer, which is climate scientists and meteorologists are human beings. I, I think, as you noted, social media and Twitter and those things teams can impersonalize the fact that we are scientists that have emotions, have feelings, have stresses, are dealing with things in our own family lives other than just climate change. And so, uh, I, you know, I think that there are these automated trolls and I think there are people who have their own sort of <laughs> self-image. And, and sort of uh, security, insecurity issues that kind of prey upon that. And so uh, I, I think that's a whole nother discussion for a future podcast episode on how, how you deal with, with trolling, not just climate trolls, but the meteorologists deal with trolls as well. As, as we draw to a close, given everything that we've talked about today, what is your sort of closing advice to the listener who may be a someone that's worried about climate change or someone that lives in a coastal community and they're worried about their house? being taken away by a hurricane or sea level rise, or perhaps even a climate scientist is frustrated because no one's sort of enacting, taking actions when we see what's not only going to happen, but what's happening now. What, what, are, what are some nuggets of advice you would offer?
1: Well, the first one actually is the one that comes from you. What I loved about what you just said is that can we maybe start by recognizing that we are human first and all the other labels, whatever, you know, professions or trolls or whatever you put on us after that is secondary. But the first one is that we're human and that we will respond to this information, to this knowledge that is emerging, to the things we can now observe in our streets um, and in our environment, that we're going to have an emotional response to that. And we need to make space for that. And that making space for it begins for you to recognize this is not a bad, you know, a bad thing you're feeling about. This is, this is a normal response. It's actually a healthy response to a really big risk. And what do you know about what helps you deal with stressful t- things like this? Is it, you know, you need to take a social media break? Is it you need to go for a walk? Is it you need to t- spend time with friends? What is it that makes you feel good? How do you take care? Do you need to go work out, right? It's every one of us has different ways of dealing with it. Beyond that, it's talk to someone. Do not think you're the only one, you're, you know, the only person who experiences this. This The one thing I find is I talk to so many people and they all have that experience. It's really fascinating how widespread that is and we all think we're alone. We don't talk about our emotions. So talk to someone about that, someone you trust who will not make fun of you and just say, will you listen to me for a while? And... Be just surprised what kind of conversation could unfold from that. And then from there, it's like, how do you deal with this at work? You know, bosses, make space, have lunches with your colleagues, take breaks, um, give people time off when they actually need it. It's, you know, there is a standard um, or an unspoken culture in many of these emergency response or or, uh, meteorologist uh, offices to assume people can just put, all these stresses away and keep showing up for work for 12 hour days without any break well that is what will cause that burnout so you have to take this seriously and give make a structure create a culture where it's okay for people to take care of themselves so they can come back show up and do their best work and then beyond that it is really at the highest levels where we need to you know professionals in the psychological arena need to create um, an understanding of what people in this area need. Um, we need them to be trained and, under, and really understand what it is they need to offer. It's not, you know, your typical little problem that you can deal with because it happens to everyone. It happens to the entire globe. So there is this is not this is not your average depression here <laughs> or anxiety. This is a very different beast. So we need to deal with, you know, those helpers, if you will, and. As a culture, I think we need to really think about how do we interact with each other and support each other to get through
0: it and that is where we're going to have to end it. And by the way, before I get out of here, I want to give a shout out to the American Meteorological Society and its centennial meeting in Boston early in January. There were healthy doses of sessions and discussion at that major meeting about mental health issues as it relates to weather and climate. So big shout out to AMS and those who organized those sessions uh, around those. I know Becky and others and AccuWeather have been very involved in that as as are others. So, uh, But before we get out of here, it it's now time for our Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weatherini at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is 17-year-old Arian, nicknamed the Weather Whiz Kid. Arian loves everything with a bang like lightning, thunder, and hailstones and hailstorms. His parents gifted Arian with a personal weather station when he was only 10 years old. I can so relate to that. And he has been observing and recording the weather for nearly half of his life. Arian, keep that spark alive. And if you know someone that should be a deserving candidate for Geek of the Wheat, please check out our social media pages on Twitter and Facebook. Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll see you next time.